The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 6, 1-6. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. The word of the Lord. You may may be seated. So I recently test drove a number of new cars. It was the first time I've ever done that. And when I went to visit the first dealership and talk to the salesman, I explained to him a couple of the features that I was looking for. And when I did, he, he looked a little puzzled, and then he told me that everything I asked for has been standard on cars for years. It's been a little while since I had a newer car. Apparently, some things have changed since 2013, which was the newest car I owned. So as I, as I asked questions and tested over these new cars, I was I was amazed at all the nice features. Like all of these, these things designed to make my life as a driver easier. Life is hard, isn't it? Like there are hard days at work and there are hard nights at home. There are relationships that are really, really hard. Hard memories that linger. Hard challenges just around the next corner. And because life is hard, we're constantly on the lookout for things that make life easier. I think this is how most inventions come about, right? A stove, like that makes cooking easier. Imagine not having a stove. Or air conditioning makes going to sleep easier. I I can't imagine how people lived in this wonderful place, which I love so much, prior to air conditioning. How did you ever go to sleep? Cruise control makes driving easier. Like, and here's what we are. We want to add things to our life that make life easier, and we want to delete those things which make life more difficult. I think there's an important question to ask whether or not you're a Christian, and that's, does following Jesus make life easier? Does following Jesus make life easier? So if you're not a Christian, maybe you're just investigating the claims of Christianity, I would think that'd be an important thing. Like, if I do this, does my life get easier? Maybe you are a Christian and life's really, really hard right now, and so it's like you're tempted to be disillusioned because maybe you're doing something wrong. Should it be this hard? Should it be easier? Does following Jesus make life easier? Now, the Gospel of Mark, which we've been studying now for the past six weeks, this was written in the early 60s or even late 50s, 80s, somewhere around there. It was right at the time when the the persecution, the severe persecution under the Emperor Nero was just really starting to, to begin. And so you had all these new Christians 
They've come to faith. They've made this commitment. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to live for Jesus. Like all of these things we sang, these would have been their commitments, but they're really not sure exactly what that looks like. And so Mark's gospel comes to them and it's helping them understand what it means to actually live as a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Like, and for them, it's not easy. And so they're asking this question, are we doing this right? Have we messed it up somehow? Should it be this hard? I think in many ways, the religious leaders in the time of Jesus coming, was, they had a very similar questions they were asking because they had studied their Old Testament scriptures and what they found throughout the Old Testament are all these wonderful promises that when the Messiah appears, things get better. So, so think about this promise in Genesis 49. So Genesis 49 promises that the Messiah would come. He's a king from the tribe of Judah. And it says this, Genesis 49, 11. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. So this is a poetic promise that when the messianic kings comes, that, that the land will be so fruitful that he would, he would take his unruly donkey and he'd tie it like a hitching post to even the best vine. He has so many vines producing so much fruit that if one of them gets broken, even his best one, it really doesn't matter. That, that wine would be in such abundance and such good quality that you would use it for laundry detergent. So here they are, they're reading and they're thinking, wow, when the Messiah shows up, this is going to be great. Life's going to get easier. These Romans are going to be kicked out of our land and we're going to have this just time of un-rivaled sort of prosperity. So they expect Messiah to make life easier for them. Jesus comes, people are saying he's the Messiah, and they start listening and watching, listening to him and watching him, and, and things don't sound easier. So is life easier if you follow Jesus? How would you answer that question? So John 6, it shows us some difficulties of following Jesus, Mark 6, but it also shows us some, some of the benefits. And so let's look at that to help answer this question. What are some of the difficulties of following Jesus? Well, the chapter begins, we just heard it read, with Jesus and his disciples returning to his hometown. And he goes in the synagogue, verse 2, to teach. And it says, all who hear him, they're astonished. Where did this man get these things, they ask. The first difficulty of following Jesus is rejection. So they hear him. And notice what they do, too. It says they hear his wisdom, and they're like, wow, he's really, really wise, and they hear these reports of all of his miracles. They're like, and he's really, really powerful. Where did all of this come from? Like, that's a great question, right? It's a logical question. And if they had stopped there and, and earnestly sought that answer, it might have been really, really helpful, but they don't. Instead, they ask another question. Isn't this Jesus? And, and they can't bring themselves to, to trust this one and believe on this one who, who's, who grew up just down the street. And it says they're offended by him. That's an interesting response, isn't it? Why are they offended? Was he arrogant? No. Like, what did, what did he say? Was, had he hurt them in some way? No. They're, they're offended because their pride's offended. This is what always kept, keeps people from coming to Jesus. In spite of what they see and what they hear, they just say, I, I just can't do it. And they reject him. Now, this rejection of the Messianic king was actually talked about throughout those Old Testament scriptures. This was part of the picture of the Messiah that was overlooked by those who were waiting for him. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 53, speaking of the Messiah, he was despised and rejected 
by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Psalm 118, this is a psalm that, this has been one of those popular hymns because it was a song of God's victory. But right at the end of this psalm, it says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the Messiah upon whom God would build his new world was actually rejected by, by the builders. And so as these people from his hometown, they look at Jesus and they say, well, it can't be him. Their rejection actually further proves, provides further proof that he is the Messiah, rejected by the ones that he came to save. Now, the ultimate display of their rejection would come less than three years later when they joined a crowd celebrating the feast in Jerusalem, chanting, crucify him, crucify him, and there Jesus would offer his life as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. After suffering ejection in his hometown, what we find next in chapter 6 is that Jesus sends the 12 apostles out to spread the message of the inbreaking kingdom of God by casting out demons. Here's what they're doing. They're, They're traveling quickly through the country, and as they cast out demons, this is a sign that the Messiah has come, and he is crushing the head of the ancient serpent. Now, Jesus gives them some very specific instructions. Look at verse 8. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. Now, Jesus is not establishing a pattern for ministry here that we're all supposed to follow, that, that, our, that he's calling us as disciples to be sort of itinerant exorcists. We travel around without any extra clothes. That's not what he's doing. This is a unique moment in history, and these Apostles are being sent out almost like Paul Revere. They're saying the kingdom of God is here. Prepare yourselves. So he says you're not looking for the best place to stay. You're not worried about food to eat. You're going to trust that God will provide exactly what you need as you herald the coming of the Messiah. Like This sounds pretty cool, don't you think? It would be fun to be one of the 12 at this moment. Like we go out and we're going to cast out demons, and people are going to welcome us, and they're going to see the power of God and the inbreaking of his kingdom. Sign me up. That sounds fun. But then verse 11, he warns them. That's not how everyone will react. He says, if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. He's telling them the truth. They will face rejection just like he did in his hometown. Because they preach a message of repentance, many people will be offended that some will listen to their message and say, how dare you tell me to repent? I mean, who do you think you are? I mean, isn't that what the hometown asks about Jesus? Who do you think you are, Jesus? I know where you're from. You see, the message of repentance, here's what it is, right? Friend, you have sinned against the almighty God and your only hope to not be destroyed in judgment is for you to cast yourself at his feet and plead for mercy. That message, like it will not always be well received, right? Because it, it, it strikes at our self-justifying, self-righteous sensibilities. I'm not that bad, <laughs> Jesus tells them that when they face rejection, they are to shake the dust off their feet and just go on to the next town or village. 
This is a symbolic act. In fact, it was often something that was done by Jewish people as they traveled through Gentile lands before returning to their land, right? As they would sort of get up right to the edge of the land before they stepped back into Israel, they would brush the the dust from the Gentile lands off their robes and sandals as if they didn't want to bring any impurity into Israel. And so what Jesus is telling disciples here is that the true pagans, those who have rejected God, are not the Gentiles. It's anyone who refuses to receive his message. Have you ever faced rejection because you follow Jesus? Maybe it was somebody at work, a classmate at school. Maybe it was one of those holidays with your family when something came up and it got really, really awkward maybe uncomfortable, maybe unfriendly even because, because you, you were honest about what God calls us to do. Maybe you're unwilling to do something. You, you called something sinful, hopefully not as a jerk, but just in kindness. You could not do it because you're a follower of Jesus and, and you faced rejection. Like in those moments, you don't need to like before you leave, like shake the dust off your sketchers. That's not what we're told to do here. This was something unique. It was a symbolic picture. But we we should be prepared that if we're honestly sharing the truth about Jesus and in love we're calling people to leave the path they're walking and turn and humbly follow Jesus, repent of their sins, that, that some will reject us for that. And sometimes that rejection turns violent. And that's what we see next. A second difficulty of following Jesus is persecution. So the scene here shifts to King Herod and his reaction to the news that there is this powerful prophet out in the wilderness. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded has been raised. So we learn here that Herod recently executed John the Baptist. And for some reason, he thinks John may have risen from the dead. This is the second time now in two chapters that we've, we've sort of seen the subject of resurrection brought up. In the previous chapter, Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. And here we have Herod talking about the, maybe John the Baptist rose from the dead. I want you to think about that. So Herod makes a statement. Maybe it's John the Baptist. Now, they would have seen that John the Baptist was headless. We'll talk about that in a minute. So to hear the king say, like, maybe he rose from the dead, I'm sure there were some around him that would say, like, that's crazy. No one who's been executed can be raised from the dead. You see, even this passage about rejection and persecution, Mark is pointing us ahead to Jesus' ultimate victory over sin in the grave. And what encouragement we find for those who have wicked kings who want to kill them, like those first Christians, to see here that even an executed person can raise, be raised from the dead. So having mentioned and brought up the subject of the execution by John the Baptist, of John the Baptist by Herod, Mark sort of flashes back and tells us how it happened. And this is verses 17 through 29. So John has been publicly preaching against Herod. Particularly the fact that Herod not only divorced his wife, but then he married his his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. And so John recognized this for the wickedness it was, and he publicly proclaimed and stood against this sin of Herod. 
Now, he, he was not shy in saying this. And Herod has this interesting response. Like you see, the, he's both angry and he's curious. Now, Herod's new wife, Herodias, she's not curious at all. She's just angry. And it says she pleads with him over and over repeatedly to kill John the Baptist. But Herod knows that John the Baptist is right and true and holy. And so he refuses to do it. But everything changes when Herod gets drunk at his birthday party. He's drunk. His stepdaughter performs a lewd dance in front of him and his friends. And Herod, filled with lust, promises to give her whatever she wants. So let's just pause this story for a second and consider the danger and destructiveness of lust. That lust dehumanizes people and creates victims. In one moment of drunken lust, Herod chooses to do something that he has refused to do in periods of sobriety for for a lengthy period of time. Listen, as Christians, we must not harbor or shelter lustful thoughts. Lust is not a victimless crime. Not only does it treat the person being lusted at as as less than an image bearer of God, as someone less than fully human, that's what happens when we lust after someone, but in the person who's lusting, it encourages a type of unrestrained behavior that is dangerous and destroys lives. So, so as Christians, we need to be ruthless in our elimination of lustful thoughts. So if you're struggling with lust, seek help today. Like before you leave today, pull a brother or sister aside and say, hey, I need help. They're not going to look at you and say, how dare you? Or look down upon you. We are sinners. I mean, we just sing about how sinful and wicked and vile we are apart from the grace of Christ. So if you, if you reach out to someone and say, I'm struggling, will you help me? They will help you. They will respond with compassion and walk with you through this. See, lust survives and thrives in the dark. So bring lust into the light and you'll watch it die. Herodias instructs her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 24. Herod instantly regrets it. But he doesn't want to lose face in front of those around him. Probably doesn't want word to get back to Rome about his weakness, and so he agrees to do it. So I want you to consider this. John the Baptist, a holy and righteous man whom Jesus says basically he was the best human being that ever lived. He is killed because of an exotic dance. Is it really worth following Jesus? If you follow Jesus, you could be captured or killed because the wrong person indulges their sexual fantasies. Now, true persecution for following Christ is not something we normally face as Christians in the West. We, we definitely face rejection, mockery, but not persecution. But we, we should recognize that all around the world, our brothers and sisters are facing persecution, death, imprisonment, even worse for the cause of Christ. I learned this week that when ISIS was capturing and killing Christians in the Middle East, husbands and wives were forced to have very difficult, unbelievable, actually, conversations about what might happen. In fact, one Christian husband having to discuss with his wife what he would do if ISIS threatened to rape his wife if he didn't confess Jesus as Lord. Can you imagine having that conversation? 
We just need to understand that there'll be powerful people committed to destroy those who follow Jesus. This didn't just happen here. It's been happening for 2,000 years around the world. If they kill the forerunner of the Messiah because of a drunken, lust-fueled promise, right? then there's no limit to what they might do. Now the third difficulty is found in verses 30 through 35, and that's exhaustion. Exhaustion. I want you to listen as I read these verses and just, Mark's sort of inviting us to enter the scene and feel it, okay? So try to feel what's going on with Jesus and the disciples right now. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus. So they've just returned from this whirlwind ministry trip throughout Israel, reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it's already late. If you're following Jesus closely, it means you are pouring yourself out in love and service for others. And like the disciples, we often find ourselves in need of rest and refreshment. But unfortunately, people's needs don't always fit neatly into our schedules. Right? And maybe there are times you feel like you're running on empty and in front of you is a large crowd desperate for help. So see this, okay? In this moment of exhaustion, Jesus doesn't get annoyed with these people. And I say that because I am 100% convinced I would have been annoyed with these people. Like, I mean, we're going and going. Like, I don't like to miss meals. And here it is. They're so busy and tired and exhausted. They says they don't even have time to eat. Like, I'd have a serious case of hangry. You know those Snickers commercials? Like, that would have been me if I'd been one of these disciples. And here they are. And yet Jesus is compassionate. He's not irritated. In this moment, I, w- I would have stopped seeing people's needs. And instead, I would have seen them as obstacles keeping me from what I need, which is I need to sleep and I need to eat. It's hard to love when you're tired. It's hard to serve others when you're exhausted. Aren't you glad we serve a God who never sleeps or slumbers? I mean, think about this. Even Jesus, here he is in his humanity, feeling the weakness of flesh, and in his exhaustion, yet he still shows compassion. And now think about Jesus in heaven. And he is always ready, he tells us, always eager to intercede on our behalf, even at 2 a.m. So one quick warning from this passage. Though following Jesus can be exhausting and serving people can wear us out, okay? We need to remember, you need to remember, you are not Jesus. You are not the Messiah. God has not called you to personally save anyone. Here's what this means. God made us this way. We need rest. We need periods of refreshment. Jesus has not called you to work and serve without ever taking a break. So, so we heard just a few moments ago about Jared's sabbatical. It's something we talk about here at Redeemer. 
as, as needing periods of rest and refreshment. This is part of the reason why, if you look at the church calendar, there's a lot of days, most days, where there's not scheduled events. Because Jesus has not called us to, to run the marathon at a sprinter's pace. Like God never rests, but his people need to. He builds it into our lives from the very beginning. So if you're here and you're, you're faithfully trying to serve Jesus, you know, whether it's here at church, in your home, in your job, and you're struggling with exhaustion and you feel like you're maybe on the verge, like I just can't do this anymore, okay, I've got a book uh, for you. And I, I know maybe you're like, oh, that's the last thing I do is read a book. It's very short, mercifully short. I actually have 10 copies here today I want to give out. It's called Zeal Without Burnout. I've read it multiple times, very helpful book on, on just how do, you, how do you serve faithfully? How do you pour your life out without getting to the point where you yourself are, are so broken, you're no good to anyone? You're not able to serve. So after the service, apparently it's the restful group that comes first. Only a couple of people wanted them. So I've still got some left. So after the service, for real, I'll be staying in the lobby. If you find, think this would be helpful, I really don't want to take any home. So come get one from me. Like we need to learn how to, how to follow Jesus and still follow his commands to rest and be refreshed. So here's our question this morning. Does following Jesus make life easier? And here's what we've seen so far. You'll, you'll likely be rejected by some people it's possible that rejection turns into persecution by the state and then a life of sacrificial ministry can lead to exhaustion. These are some of the difficulties. What about the benefits? Are the benefits to following Jesus? Well, there are certainly many, many benefits to following Jesus. We don't have time to touch on most of them, but this text highlights two of them. Here's the first benefit to following Jesus. Jesus is working through us. Jesus is working through us. We see this clearly in the feeding of the 5,000. So here the disciples are. They're on the point of exhaustion. They have nothing there to feed the people. And so they encourage Jesus in verse 36. Jesus, could you send them out to the surrounding villages so they can find something to eat? It's actually kind of the disciples, right? They see people are hungry. They're like, send them away. And Jesus says in verse 37, no, you feed them. And what are they supposed to do? Even if there had been a McDonald's right there, they said, I don't have... They have the money to do anything with it. In fact, all they've got, it's like 5,000 men plus women and children. We don't know how many people are actually there. And he's like, all they've got are five loaves and two fishes. And they had to confiscate those from a little kid. Look at verse 39. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now in this miraculous act, we find allusions to writings and events in Israel's past. Jesus, notice, has them sit there in the green pastures where he, the good shepherd, he makes it so they do not want he stands there like a, a new Moses and he prays and the father delivers bread from heaven so everyone eats their fill. But unlike Moses, Jesus will lead his people all the way to the promised land. We also find in this act a contrast between two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. So King Herod uses people 
for selfish pleasure and enjoyment, right? He uses these servants. He uses this stepdaughter. He uses John the Baptist. He uses all these people for his pleasure and enjoyment. And King Jesus, what he does is he pours himself out, serving people for their good. King Herod sits in a palace with these opulent banquet rooms and King Jesus, he goes out into the wilderness and meets people there. King Herod feasts with nobles while King Jesus invites all who are weary and heavy laden to come for him, to him for rest. Jesus includes his disciples in this miracle. Not only do they seat the people and pass out the bread, but when it's finished, they collect 12 baskets of leftovers. 12 baskets for 12 apostles. 12 baskets for 12 tribes. See, all of God's people. All of God's people. That's what this represents. All of God's people will be cared for by Jesus. He doesn't run out. He doesn't overlook or forget everyone. Everyone that's part of his people will be fed. Now in this moment on the mountain, we learn an important truth about the kingdom of Jesus. In the kingdom of Jesus, power is used to serve and bless others, not to take from them. If you had stumbled upon the scene after Jesus had had his disciples seat these men, you might have thought this was an army gathered. In fact, did you notice that he seats them in hundreds and fifties so they, they're very well organized, almost like troops would have been? And they're sitting there and there's a dynamic leader up front. And what we would expect from our understanding of the kingdoms of men is this. Here is this king standing up in front of them and he is going to send these troops out. And these troops are going to risk their lives and sacrifice their lives so that he can gain stuff for himself. Because this is the kingdoms of men. Right? Men grasp for power. They do anything they can to hold on to power. And while they have power, they use it to serve themselves. They use it to make their lives better. They use it to reward those who they think can help them and punish those who might harm them. This is the kingdom of men. And maybe you think on that mountain that day that this is what Jesus is going to do. And what Jesus does is he takes his power and authority and he serves you with it. We are followers of Jesus. And he has given all of us some level of power, authority, resources, strength. And we need to ask ourselves, how am I using it? Do I use it like Jesus? Do I use what he's given me to bless others or to bless myself? I know some of our teenagers, college students, you may be thinking like, I don't have a lot. I have a lot of debt. That's about all I have. No, you have, you have some strength and you have some energy. You have some enthusiasm. Like, how can you use what God has given you? He has given you unique things and he wants you to bless others with them. This is his kingdom. Even when exhausted, do you put the interests of others before your own? Now, as a church, we get a reminder of Jesus' power and willingness to feed his, feed his people each week when we gather, right here in front of us. Here's bread, and here's a cup, and this, we look at this bread and this cup, and this reminds us that Jesus is still feeding the 5,000, that we are here gathered as desperate people without any resources to care for ourselves, 
any resources to quiet the aching in our souls, to satisfy the hunger of our hearts. And here Jesus offers himself week in and week out to satisfy us. I mean, think about this. This table never runs out, does it? Each week you come back and here it is again. More bread, more wine. Why? To remind you, like there's, Jesus has leftovers. Jesus never runs short. You need grace this week. You need strength this week. You need him to sustain you this week. You need him to hold you fast. Here it is. He's reminding you, I'll do it. Like I, I will provide all my people need. I will nourish my people. So the first benefit is that Jesus is working in us and through us. Second benefit of following Jesus is that Jesus is walking with us. After the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat while he finds a deserted spot on the mountain to pray. Look at verses 45 and 46. We see this. This is not the first time we've seen Jesus pray. This isn't the first time we've seen Jesus pray in moments of human exhaustion. I was rebuked this week by this passage because when I get exhausted, I really have a hard time praying. I think, like I just can't focus. When I get worn out and tired and life gets crazy and overwhelming, a lot of times it's, I wanna, I'd rather lose myself in something thoughtless than pray. And yet Jesus shows us that the single most important thing we can do is pray. Let me, let me just encourage you. We need to encourage each other to pray. I, I, not, not lord it over each other. I, I bet if we surveyed everyone in this room, we, we'd be unanimous that all of us feel like we don't pray like we should. I've never met a Christian who's like, yeah, I actually do enough. I pray enough. So we all struggle with this. But we all know it. Let's do a better job of encouraging each other hey, can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? Can I encourage you to pray? Can I check in with you this week and see how you're doing? Like, let's commit to, like, text each other, prayer request, like, whatever it is. Like, we need to pray. In the moments when it's hardest to pray is when we need to pray most. So let's help each other do that. Notice what happens next to the disciples, verse 48. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass by them. So last week, Don showed us how in the Gospel of Mark, really throughout the scriptures, the sea is one of the characters. It's not just a geographic feature. It certainly is that, but it's more than that. It's a character. It's, it's how the Gospel writers often picture this disordered, chaotic world we live in as the sea, right? We can sort of picture that. You're out there right? You're tossed and turned and feel like you have no, like the sea feels unruly and overwhelming. So here you have the disciples, they're battling weariness and exhaustion, frustration on the sea, in this world. I mean, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever not feel that way? I mean, life in this world feels like life on the sea. It's exhausting and it's unruly and it seems every time it quiet down for, quiets down for a moment, we're like, yes, and then it picks back up. Like, notice this happens even though they're following Jesus. In fact, you could say this happens because they're following Jesus. Jesus said, get in the boat and go to the other side, and the sea is chaotic. The disciples here remind me of what Tolkien says. He's, he said they are butter 
spread over too much bread. You ever get that feeling? Like you're just, you're just spread too thin. You just have, there's not enough of you to cover everything you need to cover. And notice Jesus isn't there with them. At least the last time they were at sea and it got crazy and they thought they might die, Jesus was there. This time Jesus isn't even there. Are they going to die? Are they going to drown? Is this the end? It says Jesus sees them and he walks out on top of the water toward them. So sometimes when you're preaching, you feel an incredible inability to do justice to something. Jesus walking on the water is one of those things. Like, what do you say about it? I mean, picture it in your mind. Sea's going crazy. He's calmly walking. I, I, I don't know how to improve on that. Like, maybe one thing we can see is that Jesus is Lord over the chaos of life. If the sea is this chaotic, disordered world, and Jesus can walk calmly on it. It's an encouragement to us that he is sovereign over whatever you're struggling with right now. The text, verse 48, says Jesus was going to pass by them. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus was trying to avoid them. That's what it seems like at first. Like, why is Jesus trying to avoid the disciples? This is actually a reference to the time when God passed by Moses. And Jesus here is revealing his glory to the disciples in a unique way, just as God did with Moses. And just as God told Moses to call him I am, Jesus uses those very same words when the disciples cry out in fear. Look at verse 49. When they saw him walking in the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. The phrase it is I is actually two words in the original language. It's the words I am. I am. It says here in verse 51, the disciples are astounded at him, which is good because their previous reaction, verse 52 tells us, after the bread was that they were, their hearts were hardened. See, the disciples were a lot like those original Israelites who witnessed the glory of I am as he parted the Red Sea and gave them manna in the wilderness. And those original Israelites, instead of belief, hardened their hearts against him. And here we see that only as the disciples recognize something of his glory as he passed by in the waters did their unbelief melt and turn into astonished faith. So there was something about the powerful presence of Jesus with them that accomplished what a miracle could not. Now as we continue to move forward in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see something. The disciples really still don't get it. They really still don't understand who Jesus is. That their understanding and faith comes little by little. And I I want to tell you I found this really encouraging. I found this encouraging just personally. I found it encouraging as a parent. I found it encouraging as a pastor. That faith comes little by little. Like just a little more. That it takes time and it takes these periods of, of difficulty and challenge and often failure for faith to grow passage concludes in verses 53 through 56 with people, especially the sick, flocking to Jesus. Why are they coming? They're coming to him to get something from him. They're coming to him primarily to make their life better, easier. Some of them will get what they want. It'll get a little easier and then they'll leave. But others will see something unique about Jesus and they'll stay and follow him. 
People often come to Jesus in times of trouble, whether it's because of hunger, fear, or sickness. And the real question is not, do they come to Jesus in those times? The question is, do they continue to follow Jesus once their bellies are full or their fear is calmed or their bodies are healed? Have they come to Jesus just to make life a little easier for a period of time? That's what the text is encouraging us to ask. Does following Jesus make life easier? Well, the biblical answer is no and yes. No, it doesn't always make it easier. Right? Here's what it's told us. Your friends and family may reject you because this, they'll find this message offensive. The state may persecute you and try to take your life. You'll likely pour out your life in service to others to the point of exhaustion and they, they'll be ungrateful. They'll just want something from you. This is what else it tells us. Jesus went to a cross and died there. So if you say you follow him, where might that lead? Nowhere does Jesus promise that all of your problems simply evaporate if you become a Christian. I was talking with one man from our congregation recently. And he told me how God has really been working in his life the past year. That maybe for the first time in his life, he's really understanding and embracing the gospel. And he told me this. He said, I know that following Jesus will be the hardest thing I ever do. And he's right. Following Jesus means dying to self. It means purposefully and regularly crucifying your selfish desires. It means seeking God's will instead of your own. It means investing your life in the building of his kingdom, not in the production of one for yourself. Right? Nothing you do is harder than that. But I'll tell you, this brother said all of this with a smile on his face and with joy in his eyes. Yes, following Jesus is the hardest thing he will ever do, but being with Jesus is worth it. Seeing Jesus transform his own life and the life of his family has been the most wonderful thing he's ever experienced. And so as he compares the difficulty of following Jesus with the joy of knowing Jesus and seeing Jesus and watching Jesus at work, like he says the difficulty seems trivial. The more he understands the kindness and grace of Jesus, the more he learns to trust Jesus, the more he experiences the presence of Jesus in his life, the more he believes that Jesus is Lord over the chaotic sea and he's the good shepherd who feeds his sheep, the sweeter his life has become. Are you following Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? So in Mark chapter 4, Jesus told a parable about seed and soil. Right, the seed is the gospel, the soil is the human heart. And there are many different types of soil. And you learn what type of soil it is by how it responds to the seed. Does the gospel of Jesus bear fruit? So let me end with a couple questions. What kind of soil follows Jesus simply to make life easier and more comfortable? What kind of soil follows Jesus because they understand who he is? That he is the true king. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you'll help us to understand truly what it means to follow you, that it is worth it. It is worth it. That there's nothing we can do, no cause we can give our lives to that is worth more than knowing and following you as Lord. 
But I do pray that you help us understand that there, it brings difficulties into our lives. The, the reality of rejection, possibly persecution, exhaustion, and other things that just become harder because we follow you, that that's, that's reality. Help us not to grow disillusioned by that, but recognize that united to you by faith and having received your Holy Spirit, that we have resources now to persevere and to endure in those difficulties because you are walking with us, because you are working in us. So Lord, encourage us to walk with you through the difficulties of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.